Welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Brian Marcy. Very happy this week to be joined by Sarah Fisher. Sarah and I have never met. We finally met in person for the first time outside the elevator. Sarah is a media reporter at Axios. She does a weekly newsletter that if you do not read, you should read. That comes out Tuesdays. Tuesday mornings. Tuesday yes. mornings. How long have you been doing it? Two and a half years. Two and a half years every yes. week. Yes. I want to talk. I want to talk about the big trends that that you're going to be focusing on. We're going to be focusing on in um, 2020. But before, a little bit about how you got into doing this this must read newsletter. You didn't come from the journalism side. You came from the business side. Yes. So I'd had a little bit of journalism experience. Yeah. Majored it in it in college. I'd been in sales for a while. I did subscription sales at this uh, company called National Journal which still exists, but it's a sort of shell of its former self, Beltway Publication. Then I went over to sell advertising for Politico, which is how I met the folks who have uh, hired me for my job today at Axios. I had an editorial stint at CNN, a little bit of writing, and then a lot of production work, feeds, video. Yeah. And then I went back over to sales. I worked in the political advertising department at the New York Times. And then I had a very, very brief stint at the Washington Post, but I was there for just a few short months before I came to Axios. So how does your experience in sales, how does it inform how you cover the speed? Because most most reporters haven't been on that side of things. Well, the advertising side can be very technical, and so it's helpful to just know what an SSP is or DSP and how that process works. I think from a personality perspective, it's been very helpful because in sales, it's a lot of corporate procedural work. It's setting meetings, it's scheduling, it's um, being organized about your time. And in reporting, being organized about your time is critical, especially because there's only one of me covering a very wide beat. So I'd say that is the most helpful thing I've taken from sales. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like managing pipelines, very similar in okay. being a reporter. <laughs> so how do you figure, I mean, as you're the one media reporter at Axios, and you cover a lot of ground, but there's a lot of ground to cover. So yes. how do you decide, because I always talk to re- reporters about how, you, how they decide what they don't cover versus what they do cover. Because if you try to, if you spread yourself too thin, you're just going to be, well, it's going to be very surface oriented. Yes. Well, we created this product because we wanted to help anyone in the industry, whether you are a buyer and seller of advertising, a publisher, a CMO, a technologist, anyone that touches this industry, we wanted to help you get smarter, faster on media. And so when I think about what to cover, I think, is this story going to help someone get better at their job or understand their landscape better? Mm -hmm. And so because of that, you'll see we don't cover a lot of content reviews. I don't review TV shows or anything like that, even though that it's part of media. We don't think me reviewing the latest episode of South Park is going to make you better at your job. The other thing we don't do as much of is, while we do some investigative work, we don't do you know months-long investigative reporting into like a Me Too story or something like that, mm-hmm. just because those types of stories, to do them really well, require a ton of bandwidth, and we want to make sure that we do right by the people that we're reporting on, et cetera. So I choose to cover business and technology stories that are going to make people better at their job and that I think we can responsibly cover. So I want to talk about the year ahead, but... Looking back really quickly, you know, what to you were, was like the big story of 2019 in media? I think consolidation was probably the biggest story. Having, um, you know, CVS and Viacom come together and Disney and Fox finalize their merger. And we saw some of the biggest digital brands be uh, bought up and acquired like Refinery29 and Pop Sugar. So that was a major story. And then on the less commercial side, I'm based in Washington, D.C. Yes. I think there was a massive 
change in Washington towards our view of the tech platforms, which has huge implications for media in terms of whether or not we're going to start to get paid for the distribution of our work, whether or not we need to be more mindful of privacy and what that's going to look like in a few years when we build our websites. Uh, so those two you know, combined trends of consolidation on the industry side and sort of a regulation reckoning have been the biggest mm-hmm. things I've seen. So those are going to continue into 2020. I think I, I don't see them like <laughs> stopping. So let's start with consolidation. Further consolidation, most likely in 2020. What are you looking for? I think there's a, some smaller properties on the entertainment side, you know, the things like Lionsgate and MGM that are still going to be up for grabs and some of the bigger companies we know are going to be looking into them. And then I think on the digital media side, same thing. We know that there are a few companies that are looking potentially at buyers. There have been some reports out there about companies like potentially the skim. So mm-hmm. I think you're going to see some low-hanging fruit that gets scooped up. I think what's going to be the big story, though, is there are companies that are consolidating that still aren't big enough. You know, CBS and Viacom still not big enough to really compete with an Apple. So does an even bigger company one day come in and buy them? Uh, I think that's something that I'm going to be looking at. Maybe not next year, but in the years to follow, we're going to see some of that. How about on the digital publishing side? Um, What are what do you think the prospects are for like the sort of mega merger that's been mooted? You know, BuzzFeed coming together, Vox or some combination. It seems like Vice is is out of that now. any chance this happens? I don't think they're all going to come together, but I think they're going to continue to consolidate into maybe two or three big digital media companies. I think it's unlikely that you're going to see a mega merger of like every single one of the giant media companies at this point. Yeah. But what I can see happening is you build up a strong portfolio of brands, kind of like what you know Vox Media and New York Media is doing. And then potentially, and I'm not saying about this company in particular because I don't think that that's what they're planning on doing, but potentially an arm that has no big digital footprint. I'm thinking networks, I'm thinking telcos Hmm. might come and try to buy them up. Although, quite frankly, we've seen what happened when Verizon did this strategy. It didn't play out so well. So we'll see. Yeah, and it's hard to know also with the economy because, I mean, a lot of this is driven by when the recession finally comes. I mean, people have been predicting it for the last three years, so... Eventually, it will come. Eventually, it's going to (laughs) come. Okay, so let's talk about, um, I mean, it's sort of fortuitous, actually, that you're based in Washington now. I mean, because covering media from Washington, D.C., even like five years ago, wouldn't make as much sense. But now it actually does. You have great timing. Yes. No, it's been very helpful. And I always cite uh, the AT&T Time Warner trial. I was sitting in trial with just a handful of other reporters. And being a media reporter was super helpful because one of AT&T's biggest arguments was an advertising argument. They said that if they were able to acquire Time Warner, they could offer uh, cheaper advertising rates to people, that they could take on Google and Facebook. As a media reporter, you know, I had the sense to say they're probably not going to be able to take on Google and Facebook. This is a moot argument. So it was helpful to have that insight and be in Washington. And then the big privacy arguments, the antitrust arguments, even smaller things like piracy and copyright which have enormous implications for the media, but they're a little bit boring. Mm -hmm. Those are things and conversations that are happening in Washington, and I kind of have a front row seat. Right. Let's talk antitrust. I mean, this is going to be, I think, a front burner issue in 2020. It's, It's interesting just to hear the candidates on both sides. You know, Trump obviously has been attacking various platforms, but, you know, on the other side, you know, Warren and Bernie are just as, I mean, this, this could be one issue that, uh, that, that actually unites both sides. Yeah. Nobody's happy. 
Nobody's happy. You're hearing it from both sides. I think what's interesting is that Republicans have been so allergic to regulating industry. And so hearing from the Trump administration or whomever else. I think that's gone out the window. Right. I mean, at this point, like. Well, you know, I will say, like, look at the Honest Ads Act. That was a pretty easy piece of legislation. And Republicans still didn't rally behind it. Explain a little bit for people who don't know the Honest Ads Act. In 2017, Senators Klobuchar and Warner introduced Uh, the Honest Ads Act, which was a piece of legislation to regulate political advertising. Senator John McCain at the time came in and endorsed it. And so the three of them tried to push this law through, which was pretty harmless. I mean, at the end of the day, most of these tech platforms have ultimately enacted what that law wanted them to do anyway. But Congress was so stalled out. Republicans were so opposed to regulating industry that the bill never went through. We still don't have political advertising legislation that's been passed in the digital era. Okay, so how about on the privacy front? I think a lot of companies got caught a little bit flat-footed, I feel like, by uh, by GDPR, um, mostly just because it seemed like some weird European thing. Um, Didn't really sort of understand that that it was going to impact everyone. Um, And now privacy uh, with California's um, Consumer Privacy Act coming into, um, I guess in January Mm -hmm. it comes into force. These are all over. There's, there's like, I think, like 14 states at this point. Um, where, where do you see that story going in 2020? One lesson learned from GDPR was that they passed it in 2016, but it was implemented in 2018. And I think companies were caught flat-footed because they said, oh, we have so much time to implement this. And then 2018 turned and came around, and they thought, oh, my God, we hadn't really been doing it. Yeah. So, and to le- be fair, the GDPR was written in such, like, a Byzantine vein. Yes, it was hard to understand how you could even ad- adjust your business for And it. I think there was, like, sort of a wink and a nod in some ways that, like, make a real effort. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a lot of companies, like, I really do think their strategy came down to we tried. Yeah. Well, and regulators have told us that they, in the UK, that they're not going to go after, you know, some educational websites, even some yeah. media websites. They're really aiming to curb abuse of, like, big tech companies. But when it comes to privacy in the U.S., we have heard for the first time in 2019 telecom companies, technology companies advocating for a national privacy law. I know. That would have never happened. The IAB is out there asking for regulation, privacy regulation, after fighting it for 20 years. And with, I mean... Look, there's there's no points for hypocrisy. I think only journalists care. Well, here's the reason, though, that they're doing it. If you don't have a national privacy law, then you have to adhere to 50 yeah. different state laws. And what they're finding is that some of these state laws may even be worse or more stringent than a national law. With CCPA, the California rule, what's so challenging is all of these companies operate in California. What media website doesn't have an audience in California? So you're going to have to change your practices to adhere to that rule, even if rules from the other 50 states or nationally, there is no real rules nationally, aren't that stringent. And so what you're going to see happen is this is going to create a standard for any national law or any state law and it's going to be pretty stringent this is the baseline california is the baseline and it's it's pretty strict and so i think that's why you're seeing this enormous lobbying effort happening in washington dc to get away from a state-based law and just do something more benign on the national level this sounds like it makes complete sense and it also sounds like it's something that's totally not going to happen it's not going to happen in this congress (laughs) this congress is way uh too stalled out at this point to pass anything like this but it's something that we think over time Congress will tackle. Right. Okay. Streaming. The streaming wars. Yes. Um, 
this is a gigantic um, topic. Um, where are you coming at it for 2020? Well, we have a bunch of platforms that haven't launched yet. So that's the biggest thing I have my eye on. What is Quibi going to look like? Are consumers going to be into it? What's Peacock going to look like? How is that advertising experience going to compare to other streamers like Hulu that are starting to really invest in a solid free-ish advertising experience? I say mm-hmm. free-ish because you kind of still have to pay. Uh, so that's one thing. And then Two, how does that impact the incumbents? What's going to be Hulu's reaction to another ad-supported streaming service? So you're focused on ad-supporting streaming. I mean, I guess you have to divide both. it between the ad. Yeah, I think about it in both ways, ads yeah. and subscription. I think, you know, obviously Disney Plus, their narrative was, is this going to hurt Netflix or not hurt Netflix? Same thing with mm-hmm. HBO Max when that launches. At this point, the biggest story of 2020 is like, what do those launches look like and are they successful? Yeah, I think also the big thing will be like Disney Plus and Netflix are battling at this sort of like intergalactic level. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's niche streaming services, um, which are okay. But then there's this gigantic middle, like every market. Yeah. And nobody knows what's going to happen in the middle. Nobody knows what's going to happen. A huge theme. If you ask anyone in Hollywood, what should I really be atten- paying attention to in the streaming horse? They'll say like, what is the future of storytelling and creativity when so many of these you know, legacy production arms are being bought up by telecom companies or phone companies. And so I think that's another thing I'm keeping my eye on. Is like, how, what do, is you, how do you mean that? Like, you know, John Langroff, when, when Fox was thinking about either selling to Disney or to Comcast, like he made a comment that he was really thrilled that it was going to be Disney that bought him because as a storyteller, like he didn't really want to be owned by a phone company that might not put storytelling as its priority. Yeah. And so you take a look at the creative community out there. I mean, to an extent, look at Richard Plepler being forced out of AT&T. I think that there's going to be a big narrative in these streaming platforms coming to light. What does that mean for the creative community? Where do they want to place their bets which companies do they want to work with? And if the creatives all find that they're really happy at Apple, we might see Apple TV Plus become more than just like a fledgling side thing to sell phones, you know? I, I wonder about that because, um, you know what, the, the problem with, everyone likes to talk about storytelling and creativity and stuff like this, but if you're Apple, you've got a lot of constituencies and storytelling and creativity tends to piss off certain constituencies. And I wonder what's going to happen when Apple um, gets into hot water. You know, I mean, like if one of these storytellers decides that a story that they want to tell is about the Uyghurs, um, what's Apple going to do? Yeah, it's a tough editorial balance. Because it's just not worth it for them. Yeah. But you know what? Straight media companies battle that too. You know, I think about But Disney. that's their business. That's their business. That's true. Um, with with Apple, though, one thing I'll say is they've been battling some of these editorial judgment calls longer than people realize. Even just keeping an app in the App Store or deciding to remove it is an editorial decision that they have been making. They just haven't been making it in such a cultural zeitgeist mass scale where they get a lot of press attention for it. Right. Yeah, it'll be interesting. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. How about local news? I mean, you know, look, the fight to save local news has has been <laughs> being waged for a long time. Um, goes up and down. Are you? What are you looking for in twenty twenty? Well, we know that the major holding groups are in a lot of trouble. McClatchy's stock at the end of last week was like a little over two million dollars. Gatehouse oh, and Gannett dear. merged. Yeah, and you know their stock is down underneath the billion dollars as well. It's never a good sign when when the company's uh, you know market cap goes under uh, the value of a studio apartment in Manhattan. Never a good sign. I think 
what we're seeing is there's a lot of segregated efforts to come in and save local news. You know, the American Journalism Project was just sort of like this venture-backed philanthropy arm is funding some efforts. Google uh, is funding some local news efforts around the country. Facebook said they're committing $300 million to helping solve the local news problem and national news problem. The thing that's worrisome is there's no societal effort to address the problem. And in yeah. other places around the world where you have, you know, whether it's taxpayer funded media, et cetera, there is some sort of a societal acknowledgement of what, how this can bolster democracy and help uh, the greater good. In America, these are all private efforts. Yeah. I mean, it's like healthcare, right? I mean, like if you're looking at, at something from just like an efficiency standpoint, I don't know why anyone would come up with the United States system. But like we just like decide to mostly rely on market forces, but then patch it up. And I don't know. I wonder if local news ends up becoming a just a patchwork, right? You get billionaires that that are involved and and do these things because they want to do good and have people think of them well and not come after them. Um, And then you've got sort of guilt money from, maybe not guilt money, but it's just really lobbying money from like Facebook and Google. I mean, they're just trying to avoid a tax on their core business. $300 million from Facebook's not. (laughs) I agree with the patchwork (laughs) framework that you're referencing. I think we're going to see even more of that in 2020. I think that there have been some calls to have billionaires step in on the local front. I mean, Craig Newmark, the founder of Craigslist, has been very active. But otherwise, billionaires have mostly invested in national titles. If you think about Jeff Bezos with the Washington Post or Mark Benioff with Time, Reem Powell Jobs in the Atlantic. And I think we should expect some billionaires to start to think a little bit more about how they can get involved. Some do get involved with philanthropies. Uh, and then the other area is just private companies, as you mentioned, the big tech companies, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, I think Seattle's got a billionaire. Obviously, LA's got a billionaire. Um, I think Minneapolis has a billionaire. So there's a few out there's there. There's billionaires around <laughs> there's there. There's billionaires, too. <laughs> if you have a billionaire in your market, it's uh, it's good. Yes. Um, how about this, you know, the pivot to paid are you are you focused on that for 2020 and like what? I mean, because I think everyone got excited about subscriptions. I mean, for us, we sort of look at it as, as 2020 would be the year of churn. Yeah, I think that it's everyone's starting to recognize that the consumer dollar is a powerful thing uh, in terms of bringing in revenue writ large. So that could be a subscription. It could be a membership. It could get be getting consumers to buy commerce. It could be, you know, affiliate marketing. Whatever it is targeted towards the consumer dollar is, I think, going to continue. Mm-hmm. I think that media businesses recognize that, you know, relying on advertising is not sustainable in the long term, although a lot of them still have sustainable advertising yeah. businesses. That's why I think it's somewhat lost is like when we start to talk about diversification and, you know, ads are still a really good high margin business. They're a great high margin business, especially for legacy institutions. Don't expect a TV network to have all of their money come from retransmission fees. They still are very much ad supported. Same with newspapers and magazines and radio and even digital. A lot of digital companies, Axios is an advertising driven digital company. Yeah, I know. You got, I'm still waiting for the subscription product that I can pay like $10,000 a year for. I can't talk tell about Jim, that. Tell Jim to, can, <laughs> I'm ready. My $10,000 is ready for it. But yeah, on that, I think what's what will also be interesting is to see how, particularly in the magazine companies, um, you know, Condé Nast is our neighbors down here, is how they handle this transition, um, both internally and externally, to being more consumer-focused. I think it's underappreciated how, um, you know, there were, there were really ad 
advertiser focused and to be, and to build up the sort of muscle to be consumer focused and and the structure is not easy yeah and we're seeing it play out in real time it's been very difficult for those types of companies i think the thing i would almost advise them to think about is look at how important those brands are. How can you tap into brand equity? You know, people think of Vanity Fair in such a poignant way. How can you figure out how to sell other things around that? And to an extent, those types of brands are, you know, Vogue and the Met Gala, Vanity Fair, a new establishment, right? They're getting into events. Uh, but I think the consumer subscription side is going to be very, very difficult for them. Well, they're caught in the middle. To yeah. be honest with you, and and that's why I think Conde is is really betting on video to save that company, because to fill that hundred and twenty million dollar hole, um, you are not going to be able to do that by selling Vanity Fair um, subscriptions. Yeah, it's and, not happening. And I listened to that interview you did with the head of Conde Nast Entertainment. Like well, thank licensing, you for listening. it was great. It was great. And licensing is a tough business too. And uh, you know, part of it is can you build an audience on your own Ono channels or on like social channels like a YouTube that you can monetize yeah. in advertising. But you got to give like half the money away. You got to give money away or the licensing play. Can you create really, sh use your strong brands yeah. to create a narrative and get someone like a Netflix or maybe even like a linear TV network to pay you for it. But the one challenge with video is I think a lot of publishers don't recognize until they're fully in it how labor intensive it is. It requires a lot on your reporters, on your editors. It's a massive, yeah. massive feat. Yes, this is why we did not pivot to video. We pivoted to podcasts instead. Final thing is the the election. It's I don't know if you know we're having an election. I've heard. Yes, you're and you're in the middle of it. Yeah. God bless you. Uh, it must be horrible. What 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 do you expect? I mean, when we see with obviously, again, this is sort of like the platforms. You know, Trump's been attacking the media since uh, even before he got into office, and now we've the Democratic candidates are joining in. They're attacking the media seemingly just as much, maybe not in 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 similar terms. Democrats are taking issue with some certain aspects of the media, sure. I mean, Pete Buttigieg had criticized some of the LGBTQ yeah. media for the way he was portrayed. Everyone uh, works the refs. Everyone works the refs. You know, Bernie Sanders says big corporate media doesn't focus on the issues. No one is going after the media, of course, the way that Donald Trump is. That's completely different. I think the big thing that I'm looking out for, there's two things. One, the election is like a moneymaker for a ton of media, especially at the local level. Bloomberg has passed the $100 million dollar advertising market that's going to help a lot of local stations yeah. i'm sure um so the he's at like three percent of course he's at three <laughs> percent it's going to take a little while if he can move up so there's a commercial aspect of it the other aspect of it is you know the media has been integral in breaking a lot of stories that matter to this election and i don't know that we would know Half the things about Donald Trump, obviously, without the media being so uh, aggressive about reporting on his past. I wonder, like, to what extent does half of this matter? And that's a big theme that I'm going to be looking yeah. into for 2020. And impeachment, not going to have an impact on the media. I mean, it's to me, it's like, it's kind of like, I don't know. Like, the coverage has to go on, even though everyone knows how this ends. Yes. We we did a summary basically explaining why the Democrats are going to have a tough time making this a spectacle, which you need to make it a spectacle. You need to make sure that constituents care if you want to move the needle for those Senate Republicans. Um they're going to have a tough time. One, as you said, it's like we already know the end of the story. We pretty much know that the House is going to vote to impeach him and the Senate will vote to acquit him. Two is that it's been a long time coming. People have been talking about impeachment for so long. I think, you know, listeners are a little bit starting to tune out, although the debate uh, ratings were pretty good, not 
as great as like the yeah. Comey hearing and the Kavanaugh hearings, but they were pretty good. Um, and then the last thing is I think that a lot of people feel as though uh, they don't trust the media. You know, there's been so much that has been done to undermine the trust, especially in mainstream media, that they just don't want to listen to anything anyone has to say. Yeah. I mean, I lived in Washington during the Clinton impeachment. I mean, I'm dating myself. <laughs> and how different it was to to how this is going is really it's very striking to me i mean we didn't it you didn't there was no axios uh but it's just it's very striking with with how atomized people's uh information consumption is and and how that has an impact this is the first voting generation i think that's really grown up getting algorithmically served news the generations ahead of it for the most part consumed media that was, you know, across the board universally accepted. We, it, you know, obviously there were some uh, right-wing media and left-wing media, but it's not yeah. the same extent of most of the Gen Z or you know even uh, millennials that are starting to vote in this upcoming cycle. They all got their news on Facebook and Google and echo chambers. So that's one trend I'm looking out for in this next election is like, how does the news cycle impact those audiences and what they're going to be thinking about at the voting booths? Okay. So final thing is we're doing this feature about things that won't happen. Oh, I'm not okay. going to take any of your ideas because I've already assigned them. <laughs> okay. okay. I promise you. So any, any ones that appear are co purely coincidental. Okay. Give me a couple things that are not going to happen in 2020. And by this, I mean, it, they have to be plausible. Yeah. Right? I mean, that some people think they're going to happen or say <laughs> they're going to happen. I think that the big tech companies are not going to buy content arms for the most part. Um, different for telcos, but, you know, Apple has always had a lot of cash on hand. They've never really, uh, it doesn't look like they're going to buy a Netflix, and I don't think that's going to happen. Or I guess that's another tech content company, but I don't think they're going to buy a major like movie studio or anything like that. Um, same thing with Google and Facebook. I don't think any of them are going to ever buy like big yeah. content arms. Um, same thing My with Amazon. My mom used to always say, why buy, the, why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? Yeah, poach the talent. Or, or at least uh, at a reasonable price. Yeah, that's what <laughs> they do is they'll poach the talent, they'll buy some franchises, they'll buy some back-end technology. I don't think any of those companies want the responsibility of buying other yeah, content companies. No. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, what else don't I think is going to happen? I think there's been an explosion in podcasting, and we talk about it all the time. Oh, no. But I don't think <laughs> I don't Sarah, think the, it's getting awkward. I don't think the money is going to catch up um, to the production as fast as other people think that it is. Podcast monetization still pretty slow burn. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't expect people to get be getting rich off a of podcast just yet. <laughs> Yeah. And I think, you know, I have to give a pretty, I want to be hopeful about what's happening in local news, but I don't think we're going to have a large scale solution anytime, any soon. No, that's, that's, that's a forever war. Yeah. Okay. Sarah, that, we're going to leave it there, but thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode. In the meantime, if you like this episode, I hope you do, because you got this far, uh, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.